I don't know if many of you are watching the Olympics, or if you watched the opening ceremony a week ago Friday. Uh, it's being hosted in Beijing. Uh, and as always these days, the, the opening ceremony is just an enormous production uh, filled with some beautiful moments. And the choice of who is going to light the Olympic flame uh, is one filled with meaning for any country. So this year, uh, Uyghur cross-country skier Dinagir Ilamujiang, difficult name to say, uh, was chosen along with a, a downhill skier, Zhao Zhao Wen, to, to have this honor. And of course, this is happening while there's a diplomatic boycott going on uh, of the Olympics by many countries because of the treatment and the persecution of the Uyghurs that's going on right now. Uh, even while many, I think, in the West don't know how to think about that or even how to figure out exactly what's happening. Uh, recently, one of the minority owners of the Golden State Warriors got into hot water for verbalizing what many people think. This is what he said to an interviewer. Nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs, okay? You bring it up because you really care, and I think that's nice. The rest of us don't care. I'm just telling you a very hard, ugly truth. Of all the things I care about, yes, that's below my line. Now, he caught a lot of heat for that statement. Uh, he issued something of a retraction slash if anybody was hurt or offended by my words, I'm sorry, sort of thing. Uh, but for all the hoopla, I think what he said is basically true. The hard, ugly truth is that we don't tend to care about the suffering of other people, uh, especially the suffering of people on the other side of the world. I know somebody, though, that does care very much uh, because I'm friends with a man named Torty. Torty came to Christ in 2015 through the outreach of some fellow students at his university. He's an English major. Uh, he grew up culturally Muslim, but made a, a very sincere profession of faith when, when he heard the gospel. He started growing in his faith. He was baptized in our church. He was a, an encouragement to everyone. I remember uh, he shared Easter dinner with us that year. Uh, he taught some calligraphy to Lawrence, who's into that sort of thing. A, a really sweet memory. And Torty shared with us that some of the danger that he faced uh, every time he went back to Xinjiang uh, was, was very high. He, he told us about harassment, about being roughed up, about being interrogated. Uh, he'd been closely monitored for years. Uh, but none of us thought that the, the trip home for the holidays that year would be the last time that we would see him. The way camps work is once you're taken there, you don't have any outside communication with anyone, uh, at least none that's not monitored. So his parents knew that he was there. We were able to talk to them. Uh, they could have simple communication a couple times a year, always being listened to, always being watched. But there he is in the camp. We haven't seen him. They haven't seen him. And that's that. A young, sharp college student, a new Christian, and now, who knows? Now, I don't tell you that story to make any sort of a comment on geopolitics. I don't even tell you that story to arouse your sympathy, per se. But I think it's very useful for us, personally and spiritually, to think about how faith has to work itself out in the darkest of places. 
So imagining Tordy's situation, uh, one of the biggest challenges, I think, is that he has no idea how to answer the questions that come at him again and again, I assume. How long is this going to go on? When is this going to end? And, and why is this happening in the first place? When you can't answer those questions, your hope is going to have to come from a completely different place. As we turn to the book of Exodus this morning and look at chapter 2, we're going to look at what in many ways is a dark chapter in the life of the people of Israel. I mean, they've undergone great deliverance, great preservation from famine at the end of the book of Genesis. God's providence was what brought them to Egypt to save them. And they had really a privileged position because of Joseph's relationship with Pharaoh and really their relationship with the whole nation of Egypt. But as Exodus begins, a new Pharaoh is in power. A man who doesn't remember Joseph. And all that was light is now darkness for them as he fears their numerical growth. He comes to view them as enemies, and then he uses them as a commodity to be exploited. They've been enslaved, impoverished, and then the, the machines of genocide have begun to work. As chapter 1, as chapter 2 begins, our, our expectations are raised with the birth of Moses, who we know is the deliverer, the redeemer is on the scenes, and yet what we're going to see here is that things sink even lower with the failure of his initial engagement with the people. So the, press, the, the question that presses in on us as we study this morning is this. When life is dark and questions unanswered, where do I find hope? We'll try to answer that question this morning by looking at Exodus 2, verses 11 through 25. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and he even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. 
During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. If you're taking notes this morning, you can write down this main idea. I think this is the main idea of the text. In the darkness of life, the promise of God is the hope of his people. In the darkness of life, the promise of God is the hope of his people. And we'll consider that in two main points. First, the darkness of life. And secondly, the promise of God is the hope of his people. So let's dive in here. I kind of am using a a thematic approach to an outline here. Sometimes it works, kind of go in consecutive verses. Uh, This is a narrative text, obviously. I kind of want to consider the darkness as a whole, and then we'll get to the light. I I think the darkness that we can see in this text, it's really threefold. First of all, there's a a situational darkness, right, the people of Israel. Uh, Israel is in the same dark situation that they've been in for years now. Uh, When we leave Moses, uh, he has just been uh, saved uh, from death and then adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, his, his own mother's able to nurse him, but once he's weaned, he's taken to the palace, raised as her adopted son. That's chapter 2, verse 10. Well, the next words there in verse 11 are one day, which is just a breathtaking gap in the life of Moses. I mean, Moses is writing this. It's an interesting question. Moses, why did you decide to skip like the age of three to the age of 40? He's not writing an autobiography. He has theological purposes. Uh, That's obviously what's guiding his writing. But for our consideration, I just want us to stop and think about the fact that 40 years of oppression has gone on unabated. We we know it's 40 years, I should say, by by, uh, Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, fills in only two details, that he was educated in all the education of the Egyptians, and that 40 years passes. But 40 years of oppression, think about that. So forced servitude has gone on. They're building these store cities for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's attempts to to wipe out the next generation by killing the the male babies presumably has continued to go on. Maybe other people like Shifra and Puah, remember the the Hebrew midwives who have to exercise civil disobedience, have to disobey the government to do what's right in God's eyes and, and trust him at the risk of their lives. Maybe many more people like that have had to be brave. So when we read phrases in the text, like in verse 11 there, that he looked on their burdens. Or, or the bookending commentary in verse 23. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. We're left to think about a generation that's born and growing up. And some people growing old, oppressed and enslaved and wondering how they got there. Why is this happening to us? Didn't, didn't God lead us here in the first place to save us? Well, then why is this still going on? It wasn't written yet, but we can can imagine the words of Psalm 13 on their lips. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? 
How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So a very real situational darkness here. But there's a second aspect to the darkness, and that's, that's an internal darkness that we can see in the text. That is to say, the people that need to be delivered aren't ready to be delivered. Now let's unpack the, the scenes there a bit. We've got, we've got three scenes packed into the first five verses. First, Moses goes out to his people and looks on their burdens. Something has brought their plight to his mind. Uh, we, we wonder, growing up, did, did, he, did he know what was going on with them? That, that's a gap in the text for us. But here, uh, he, he's decided to go out as an intentional move to see what's happening. And immediately he witnesses an incident of oppression. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Got to think that this would be a common occurrence for an enslaved people. Verse 12, he, Moses, he looked this way and that, seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. I think as Western people, I wonder what the first question that comes into your mind is. I think usually as Western people, the first question we think of is, was this a justifiable homicide? Okay, so let's, let's dive into that question for a minute. I put the question to a grand jury of 12 teenagers last week. Uh, the teen ministry, I, we had 12. Uh, you can guess the breakdown. I don't know if you can. <clears throat> 11 said Moses is clearly in the wrong, not a justifiable homicide. They pointed to the fact that he looks this way and looks that. So that's, that's malice of forethought. Okay. Uh, and, and if he's in the right, then why did he bury him in the sand? That, that, was, that was their logic. Okay? Only one brave soul stood on the other side. What's really interesting to me is that the New Testament twice picks up this very section, this very scene of Scripture. One was read by Derek earlier. So Stephen's speech in Acts 7 and then Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, neither take Moses to task for this. Now, that's not definitive. They, they're kind of picking up the, the whole sweep of Moses' faith and action. You can tell me what you think. The, the text, which is what I'm going to stick to, focuses on the result of Moses' action. So a second scene. A Moses now newly committed to engagement with his people finds these two Hebrews fighting. And he addresses the one who we're told is in the wrong and, and seems to have the upper hand. So, so this Hebrew is, is, is beating this Hebrew. And, and he tries to bring about some sort of reconciliation. Tries to stop the conflict. Have you ever stepped into the middle of a conflict before? You, you might get hit. Uh, that's sort of what happens here. The, the response to Moses asking, why do you strike your companion? Is immediate. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? And then to really stick it to him, he says, are, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? This tells Moses that his deed is known. It's not a secret. Word is traveled. He's in danger. And sure enough, Pharaoh, when he hears it, tries to kill him. And Moses flees to Midian. Now that, that question, who made you a prince and a judge over us? What's the answer? The answer in the book of Exodus is God did, right? That's what makes for some sad reading throughout the book of Exodus. I mean, God is raising up a deliverer, Moses, 
who at every turn is obstructed, is complained about, is resented, is openly rebelled against, all by the people that he's there to save. That's what Stephen's preaching about in Acts 7 as he rebukes the Jewish leaders for their failure to believe in Jesus. Even God's good plan of salvation is rejected by the people that are the objects of salvation. The very people who were supposed to benefit from it. I think that points to a sad reality in human beings. We're so committed to our own autonomy, what we call our freedom, that we oppose any and all authorities. We begin life resisting our parents' authority. We develop a resistance to teachers and employers, governing authorities, not just when they're wrong, but even when they're right. I was thinking of an example of this. I have a friend who's a senior pastor who recently was teaching his church on what is a biblical model of leadership. Up until this point, he's the senior pastor. He told me, I basically make all the decisions. It's really uncomfortable. So he teaches his congregation. The Bible says that there should be a group of men, elders, that are leading the church together. So he teaches this, all goes well, comes to a congregational meeting, gets several hands, People immediately accuse him of being power hungry. He was talking to me going, I'm so confused. For 10 years I've made every decision. I'd like to share this leadership, as the Bible says, with other men, and they accuse me of being power hungry. I think that that points to this thing that's going on. We have something in us as human beings that just resists authority. I think in our cultural moments, suspicion of authority is at an all-time high. Political parties are under fire. Courts are under fire. We, we definitely don't want parents making decisions for their children in our society. But of course, the problem that people are finding, going to find, is that after all the authorities are debunked and all the, the structures are torn down, we still need people to make good decisions. We hope they make good decisions. So even while we resist authority, we long for good and for loving authority. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is one of the ways that I'd seek to try to persuade you of the truth of Christianity. I mean, I wonder how you would answer the question, who should be in charge of your life? Who should be in charge of things? I would suggest to you that the the longing that's in you and every person for some authority to make good and loving decisions for us points to the fact that we are made in the image of God. I'd encourage you to pick up the Bible if you haven't read it before and read it through this lens. The God who made us and who therefore has all authority rightly seeks to use that authority again and again for the good of the people under his authority. Brothers and sisters, it's it's worth all of us as a part of our discipleship focusing on the redemption of authority by giving thanks for the way in which parents and teachers and government leaders and pastors bless us by making good decisions. We end up with plenty of ammunition on the other side, right? But let's be thankful for the ways that we are blessed. Even we can trust in a fallen world that God intends authority to be used for our good. But that's our second source of darkness, our second way that we see darkness in this text, the internal problem on the part of the people of Israel. They don't want to be delivered. 
There's a third way we see the darkness, and that's the darkness of leadership. The deliverer himself is flawed. Now, there are a number of good things about Moses that we need to look at in our second point, but while the Old Testament provides many examples of people who are supposed to point us to the Messiah, and Moses is one, it just as ruthlessly points out the flaws of all those different people. It's as if the the people are supposed to see the the coming Messiah and then go, yeah, but, but no, Adam's not it. Noah, no, not Abraham, not Moses, not David. It's interesting here with Moses. Commentators uh, differ on their assessment of what he does here. Some describe him as making an error mainly of miscalculation. So he politically miscalculates that the people of Israel are not going to accept him and that he doesn't have as much standing with Pharaoh as he thought. Others describe Moses here as a failure born of the pride that's in his heart. So he acts alone. He acts in secret. He relies on his own strength and wisdom. He doesn't have God's commission yet. Both of these things may be true, miscalculation and failure. What's clearest in the text is not miscalculation or pride, but Moses' own struggle with fear. Can you see that there? He's afraid and he runs. Fear is going to be a theme of his own sanctification throughout the book. You go to chapter 4 and read some of his memorable statements. God is commissioning him to go. They won't listen to me or believe me. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And then finally, please send someone else. Moses' struggle with fear of man is something that we all can relate to. The Bible calls fear of man a snare. So Moses runs. And his flight takes him into exile. Midian is neither Egypt nor the promised land. And though we'll consider how God provides for him while he's there, look at verse 22 with the birth of his first son. You know, in modern times, we don't don't use the naming of our children to describe our mood. Uh, My children might be thankful for that on some level. Uh, But in ancient times, they certainly did. So... uh, Moses names his firstborn son Gershom, which means a stranger there or a foreigner there. It isn't clear to me whether he's speaking about Midian or Egypt, maybe both. But it's clear that he feels like a stranger in a strange land. He's a foreigner. Uh, Feeling like a foreigner can be hard anywhere. When my family walks down the street in China, uh, I'm used to hearing people talk about me it's not really behind my back because it's, it's, we're right there. We're looking at them. But they assume that I can't speak Chinese, I think. Um, so I, I hear la wai, la wai, which means literally old foreigner. It's just a way of, of calling someone a foreigner. And, um, but I chose to be there, so it doesn't really bother me, right? And I kind of use it as a chance to say something uh, zingy to them in response, like, uh, oh, really? You know. Um, but Moses, when he calls his son, stranger there, he he means that he's constantly reminded of the fact that he's not where he's supposed to be, and of the failure that brought him there. So let's take stock of the darkness. Now people are in a depressing situation that seems to go on interminably. They sabotage the arrival of the deliverer, 
And the deliverer doesn't do so great himself, running to Midian in fear. Let's close in prayer. No, we're not going to close in prayer. I think that there's some application we can take from this darkness before we turn to the light. Uh, First, there's encouragement here that the Bible doesn't varnish over how difficult life is. I don't know where you are at right now, but Exodus 2 is meant to speak to you in the midst of your darkness. The Bible doesn't minimize the tragedy of life in a fallen world. It doesn't minimize the sin that's in my heart and in your heart that makes things worse. It doesn't tell you just to take life's lemons and turn them into lemonade. It it stares the darkness squarely in the face. But then secondly, in terms of application, we're meant to have a right diagnosis so we can have a right treatment plan. That's one way to view what's happening here, a diagnosis of what is wrong. When Meg and I were in China trying to get a clear cancer diagnosis, uh, we'll freely tell you that we were looking for the wrong things. So we would, we would go to hospitals and we'd walk in and we'd be like, oh, the waiting area seems well decorated. Uh, there's a good ambiance here. Uh, the check-in seemed to be better at this place than that place. You know, it's utter foolishness, right? What matters? The right diagnosis so that you can get the right treatment plan. Well, we've got to have the right diagnosis. So with the darkness diagnosed, what's the light in this passage? Let's consider secondly, the promise of God is the hope of his people. I mean, if we're, if we're right that this text is meant to, to help us in dark times, we're going to have to think, first of all, what it's like when we go through difficult times. One of the things that you feel when 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 you're going through trial, when you're going through hardship, it feels like the ground that was solid beneath your feet is now moving. That's how Megan and I would describe the last two years of of our life to some degree. I mean, you're healthy, and then all of a sudden, whoa, can't take that for granted anymore. I'm not healthy. We have a home. We've lived in for many years. Well, that's the place we may never get back to. But, But usually it's not these kind of big external situations. It could be. Uh, usually it's things like, I, I, I kind of had a, a hopeful, positive attitude, and now I'm struggling to get up in the morning. I'm struggling to know, what, what am I supposed to be doing? It feels like things are not stable under our feet. We, we can't get our footing. So I think the idea here is that we have to put some pylons into the ground that can be the, the firm footing the firm stability that we need. In Shanghai, we love watching the the construction of these big skyscrapers that they put up. You know, the first thing that they do is they build a massive pit. They dig a massive pit in the ground. And then they bring in these concrete trucks that have a long arm that stretch down into the, the pit. And it's got a tube that they just pump concrete down into these pylons. Shanghai is basically a swamp. It's, it's soft mud. So they have to go way down deep to get the the pylons there for the the building to go up. So let's take that illustration and ask, what pylons is God telling us to sink deep into the soil of our lives? I think there are three in our text. Number one, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. One of the challenges sometimes in interpreting Old Testament narrative is that it, it doesn't interpret it for you. So so you might be reading through the book of Judges and you read about some terrible, heinous thing that happens and you go, okay, that was bad. Yes, that was bad. I got that. 
That was bad, right? Or, or it just doesn't give you the main point. So you read a story and you're left to pull back and reflect. Um, well, here Moses just doesn't want us to miss the main point. So he pulls out of the narrative, verse 23 to 25, and he says, okay, make sure that you don't miss this. During those many days, so a long time of suffering, eventually the king of Egypt dies, which doesn't bring relief. Rather, the people are groaning in their slavery, and they cried out for help. I just want to stop and notice biblical example number 647, that prayer matters. Prayer really matters. Has anything changed externally? No. But internally, the people begin to pray real, authentic, honest prayers to God. They haven't given up in the midst of all of their darkness. They're crying out for help. That's so encouraging to me to ponder these people who have held on to their faith through all these years of suffering. Beloved, devote yourselves to prayer in the midst of your hardship in life. Colossians 4.2, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Are you devoted to prayer in good times and in bad? Does prayer change things? Well, look at what the text says here. It moves the hand of God in this text. Look at what happens after they pray. Five amazing statements all basically say the same thing. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Same thing, five different ways. And the central statement there is, is central. God remembered his covenant. God had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had, he had told them that he was going to bless them and make them a nation, give them a promised land. He said that those who blessed them would be blessed and those who cursed them would be cursed. Told them that all nations were going to be blessed through them. And when it says he remembered here, that's a funny phrase for us in English. It doesn't mean he forgot. You know, to our ears, it, it seems like forgetting is possible. So, so we're moving to Singapore, we might say to you, at Arlington Baptist Church, remember us in prayer. Now, now, why might we say that to you? When we move to Singapore, remember us in prayer. Well, we say it because you might forget. <laughs> you know, we, we actually mean remember when you gather to pray, to pray for us and pray for our work. Well, that's not what it means here. God doesn't need help in remembering. He didn't, he didn't bring them down to Egypt and, and then kind of go to sleep after Joseph dies and, and oh, i got to wake up and care. For, no, that's not what's happening here. He remembered just means that in his providential plan, now is the time to act to bring his promises to fruition. The revelation awaits the appointed time and God's response to the people's appointed prayers is this time. It's now. So our first pylon to sink down is this fact. God remembers his promises. In the darkness of your life and mine, living under the oppression of sin, the exile of this world, outside the promised land, that's our reality. We groan 
under the burdens we carry. We groan under the weight of our own sin. We cry out to God in prayer. But we have got to hold on to the truth that God's covenant is sealed in the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And it is more certain than the sun rising tomorrow. He promised that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, then we will be saved. He said to His disciples, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. Beloved, He will save us because He's promised to. If we turn away from our sins and we trust in Jesus Christ, that we will be saved. Sink that pylon deep into the soil. There's a second thing that our text teaches us. And that's that God's Redeemer identifies with His people. God's Redeemer identifies with His people. Which is to say, He comes to help them. Look what Moses does here. He leaves behind an incredible situation in Egypt. He's got it made. Status, wealth, position. When we read here that he went out to his people and then looked on their burdens and then he gets involved. He's like stepping. I wonder if there was anybody saying, oh, Moses, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's it's all falling apart for you. You had it made. It's a dangerous progression for him. Every step threatens the life he has. But, But Moses makes the choice repeatedly to keep going. And that's what the writer of the book of Hebrews was, was saying he did by faith. That's what we read earlier. I'll read it again. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. So a costly obedience for Moses in terms of what he leaves behind. And we're exhorted in that passage to live a similar life. Do you and I live for the fleeting pleasures of sin? Do we realize that they're fleeting? Those things that seem so enticing in the moment? Do we see them as as passing away? Secondly, notice what Moses does. He consistently helps those who can't help themselves. He helps those who can't help themselves. I mean, the man just keeps intervening to help helpless people. The beaten Israelite, the the, the wronged and and beaten Israelite. And then when he shows up in Midian, he's at it again. Whatever we could say about his fear in running, he hasn't stopped identifying with those who need help. Look at verse 16, our first scene in Midian. Reuel, later known by his other name Jethro, has seven daughters, apparently no sons. So these seven daughters have to take the sheep to get water from the well where they apparently had an ongoing battle with shepherds there. Twice in the text, they're called the shepherds. If you put the definite article, it means a group of bad guys, right? The shepherds. Well, Moses stands up to them. He rescues them. He waters their flock. Is this the wisest course of action when you're a, a foreigner in a new place? Why did he do that? Well, Moses is telling us the story because it's it's part of how he ends up provided for in Midian. But it completes the picture of someone who helps those in need. As an example, it's a great text to ask ourselves, 
who needs our help around us? Where can we intervene to help people in need, the unbeliever lost in sin that we might be able to speak about the gospel to? The unborn child in need of an advocate in our culture? Those in poverty who need a helping hand? Maybe just that coworker who's had a sudden grief come upon them, upon them in life. But that example that we can take of helping others, that's not the pylon to sink in the soil. The pylon is the picture Moses is of Jesus. The greater redeemer who, who does those same things in an even greater way. He didn't leave Pharaoh's palace. He left heaven itself and all its glories to come and identify with his people. By taking the form of a servant, being found in human likeness. And and he didn't just come to relieve us of our temporal burdens. He came to pay for our sin and the eternal debt that we owed to God because of our failure to keep his law. So friend, do you realize your need of help this morning? Your need of redemption? Jesus Christ became a man to help you with a problem you have no way to solve. You need someone to save you from your sins. See how this text points you to him and believe on him for salvation. I'd love to talk to you more about that after the service. It's really the most important thing that you see. So pylon number one, God keeps his promises. Pylon number two, God's redeemer, Jesus, identifies with his people. Let's consider third and finally that God's plan is undeterred by human sin. God's plan is undeterred by human sin. But when I think about how this story fits in with the larger story of Exodus, it seems like it's teaching us that our unfaithfulness stands in stark contrast to the faithfulness of God. Their Redeemer comes on the scene, they reject him. Moses the Redeemer comes on the scene and then runs in fear. At the close of the narrative, they're groaning under continued slavery, and Moses is naming his son foreigner while living in a place of exile. And yet we know the story isn't over. In fact, we can see ways in which God uses what happens to prepare and to provide for Moses and the people. I mean, God provides for Moses a father-in-law who's going to come later and offer key counsel that will help Moses lead a nation. God provides a wife for him who's going to save him from death just a couple chapters later. He provides here the first of two sons born in Midian who will give Moses a lineage in Israel. And he's preparing and providing for the people too. They're being strengthened in their perseverance and being taught to pray in the midst of trial. Beloved, he does that in our lives through times of darkness. When we're in that situation that feels so hopeless, and yet we're trusting God, believe that he's working in your life to develop perseverance that has to finish its work. We are exiles too, living outside of the promised land and needing to trust him. But the point here is that nothing deters the good purposes of God for his people, not even their sin. The devil comes along and said, you've blown it. It's over, game over. God never says that. It's always darkest before the dawn, and we see that as never more true than at the cross of Jesus Christ. God accomplishes great good 
through times of darkness. So three pylons to sink down deep into the soul of our souls. God keeps his promises. God's Redeemer came to identify with his people. God's plan is undeterred by human sin. We began our time by thinking about the Uyghurs and my friend Torty. I pray he's doing okay physically. And more than that, I pray that he believes these things in his own situation. Maybe with that last point, I find myself wondering if, if the God who takes evil things that human beings do and works them for good, maybe that's what he's doing to bring about spiritual awakening among the Uyghurs, one of the most unreached peoples on planet Earth. It would be just like God to take things that human beings mean for evil and to use them for good, for the saving of many lives. But beloved, when life is hard and life is dark, where do you and I find hope? Our text today teaches us that in the darkness of life, the promise of God is the hope of his people. Let's pray together. Father, you've been so good to us in Christ. I pray as we conclude the service that our hearts will be filled with joy as we think about the salvation that you've made available to us in Jesus Christ. Help us to trust you in all things, especially when life is dark. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.